Oscar. Good evening. <laughs> is this thing on? That, this one is different. I'm Oscar. I'm a marijuana addict. And I don't think that's ever been more clear to me than this moment. Um, it's really an honor to be here tonight. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a surreal experience, and I'm glad that you could all be here for it. And uh, I'm enjoying it. And um, yeah, marijuana addict. Uh, my good friend uh, Joe, you know, he reminds me that I'll always be a marijuana addict. I, I was hoping uh, when I got here that it was just a phase that I was going through. <laughs> and uh, I tried to convince uh, uh, a lot of the folks at the rehab that I went to that uh, this is going to pass. This is just uh, this is a bit of a bad luck streak. And um, if I could just get rid of marijuana and a few other... Uh, sundry items that I was ingesting that uh, all would be well. And, uh, well, I just, I did not see what's coming. And uh, I took my last toke on uh, July 16th, 2001. And uh, I don't remember much about it, um, but I remember it didn't work. I do remember that. And, uh, and then I surrendered. I had no idea what the concept of surrender was. And uh, just to go back, uh, just to go back a little bit, um, you know, I was born in Buffalo, and uh, that's, yeah, that's a reason to uh, use right there. And uh, yes, I was born a small black child in, uh, in Buffalo on a cold winter night, and, um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was 1959, and uh, my parents uh, were not alcoholics. They were not addicts. Uh, the uh, World War II uh, did quite a number on my, uh, on my pop, and uh, I never quite knew what happened, but his, his, uh, his sisters would say that he was never quite the same when he came back. So he had some, some issues, and... Uh, but they were both loving parents, and uh, but the, they just did not get along. So it was a, it was a very in those days you just didn't get a divorce. So it was a very long, uh, a long time before they, they got divorced. Finally, in 1968, so there was uh, there was a little violence and and uh, lots of yelling and things like that. And uh, and so I went uh, I went inside, you know, and. Um, I think that's where it began. Uh, and then I, uh, I moved to uh, San Diego when I was a teenager. And uh, not really a good time to move uh, when, when you're a teenager, especially one who's a little, a little introverted. And uh, I became completely beige in high school. Uh, I, I don't think anyone that I went to high school would remember who I was. I, was, I, I just didn't want to take part in anything. I just wanted to show up do what I had to do and get out of there. And uh, it was very, that's where I really learned, uh, learned some good isolating skills. And I had not picked up a drug at that time or a drink. And uh, my first, uh, first taste of, of uh, marijuana was, was through peer pressure. It was a couple of friends and uh, 
and they shoved a joint in front of me and they said, come on, tonight's the night, you're gonna do it. And, uh, and I hemmed and hawed and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna do this, but you know, I'm a, I'm a musician and uh, I guess this was a rite of passage, you know, and uh, uh, early on in my recovery, I, my recovery, I blamed this whole thing on uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo because uh, it seemed to really work well for them. And so, all right, let's try it. So I tried it, and uh, nothing happened. And uh, but you know, good friends—they don't—they don't let up. So uh, soon after a week or two after we tried it again, and this time it worked. And um, it worked so well. This was. Uh, this was uh, the late 70s, I think 70, 79. And uh, right afterwards, I had the best sex I've ever had on a waterbed uh, with a woman. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm a homosexual, so that should tell you something <laughs> right off the bat. So right there, I had a sign that this is this is probably not the best thing for me. <laughs> but I, uh, I continued uh, with this, and it, uh, it became a, uh, a daily thing. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up being high for uh, 22 years, every single day. Every single day. That was my primary purpose. I could not do anything unless, uh, unless I had that. And, um, you know, and I, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I said it did not work for me. It was definitely a catalyst for my muse. Um, you know, I could, I could uh, smoke and uh, it would be soon after, just a few seconds after that first hit, then I would start to get into that place. I'd hear sitars and uh, I'd start to get into that place and I could, I could get into that creative free area. And so it was a tool, it was a very important tool to me. Because uh, reality, uh, reality sucked. It was to be avoided at all costs. And uh, it worked. It worked. And I think that's something we probably all have in common in this room. There was at least a time where it worked. And I hung on to that. And at some point in my using, I crossed the line. And I've done, uh, I've done a lot of looking back, I've done a lot of inventory, I've done a lot of contemplation, and I don't know where I crossed that line from when it went to being not just a good time, but a tool for my muse, to when it became a way to face the day. You know, wake and bake and all that, I waked and baked pretty early on and uh, it was it, it went from being a tool for my muse to being my medication my fuel to just face the day not even really to get high just to be okay and uh, and this went on for a long time that's the thing about marijuana you know I go to uh, I sleep around I go to other fellowships and uh, <laughs> uh, the thing that I notice about Marijuana Anonymous and the fellowship is uh, that I hear a lot is that it's uh, the bottom is different. The bottom is different here. It's a very, very, it could be a very, very long, 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 long bottom as far as the eye can go. 
It just goes on and on and on. And, um, you know, I prided myself on being a careful addict. I never got arrested. I did get arrested once for jaywalking, so you're looking at a hardened jaywalker here. And, <laughs> and uh, but I never got caught. One reason is because I never left the house. And, uh, <laughs> but I never got caught yet. And so this bottom just went on and on, and it was a very uh, slow, progressive thing in that Everything that I cared about, every person that I cared about, almost every idea that I cared about, I slowly and gradually pushed away on, until the point where I, I guess I got my wish or my disease got my wish at that point, which was that I was totally alone. You know, I was able to continue to work and, and uh, make a living, but I was totally alone. And all I really wanted, the purpose of the day was just get through this day so I can get home and be alone. And, um, you know, I even copped a resentment that I was helping other people. I was helping other friends with their intervention. And uh, where was mine? Where's my intervention? And um, I think that's why I have a little, I, I'm kind of over it now. I had a resentment at the uh, Lotus Eater story because no one grabbed me by the collar and threw me back in the boat. I had, to, I had to ask for help, and that's what I did. It came in the form of a phone call. For some reason, just one day, and I think it was, uh, it was around the 4th of July where I was uh, in a department store with my, uh, my now ex-partner, and uh, he asked me if I was high. And you know, I'm like everybody here, I, I quit so many times, you know, and, and our loved ones would say, I thought you quit. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, I did, yeah. This time I'm quitting. And he, he asked me, uh, he asked me in the department story, are you high? And I said, with all, uh, with all Academy Award flourish, no. <laughs> You know, the indignity to, that someone would ask me that, and uh, especially in a department store. And for some reason, that one lie uh, just stuck with me, for, and I could not take it anymore. Who was I lying to? And uh, so I, I made the call. I pulled the car over to the side on the way to work, and I made the call, and I said three words that, uh, that I could never say. I could say it in a restaurant, I guess, but I need help. I need help. And, uh, and, and I got help, you know. And I guess I was ready because with that one phone call, it set the dominoes falling. And as each one fell, I said, uh, I said, yes, you know, well, maybe you should come down and we can evaluate you. All right. Now, maybe you should go, uh, you should pick uh, one of these uh, addiction clinics to go to. All right, and uh, I just said yes to everything that came in succession. Had I known what was coming, I don't think I would have said that. I would have said absolutely not, but I didn't know it was coming and I was out of ideas. And uh, so I said yes, and I ended up um, at home soon after with all these brochures of where, where to go to, to, uh, to get clean and sober, these, these rehabs and uh, 
I, it didn't make any sense to me. You know, they always have these nice pictures of a nice little room and, and a swimming pool and things like that. At the time, I was also taking opiates, so I didn't want anything to do with water or anything like that. This was just, and, uh, and my ex was on the bed, and he said, Betty Ford, you're going here. And uh, that was just another yes. Yeah, all right, I'll go there. So I drove myself out to the desert, and I walked through the doors that said, uh, admitting, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> uh, and it was an experience that, that I never want to do again, but I will never forget it. And uh, it was just what I needed. It was, it, was a, it was a horrible experience. And I continued to do everything they said. And, uh, you know, the, it, when you hear that word, uh, Betty Ford, you know, you think, uh, I was thinking high back chairs and uh, pedicures and sautéed garlic and things like that. <laughs> Not the case. Not the case. It was, it was like a Motel 6 without televisions. And every 15 minutes was accounted for. And it was all recovery from when the, well, the lights, yeah, it was, it was dark when we woke up. It was all recovery, and, uh, and I needed that. I needed that. I don't know if I could have made it to a meeting. I said, and stuck around. I did, I did about uh, eight years before I got there, I did visit a couple MA meetings in Hollywood, and uh, it was a smaller, really smaller fellowship then, and uh, there were like five people, and it was very depressing. It was like a Nebraska bus station, and it was, <laughs> no one wanted, it was time to share. Nobody wanted to say anything, and uh, so that, I figured that I, I wouldn't have stuck around, I don't think, unless I had this kind of, I won't say forced, but it was kind of forced on me, you know. I had to do everything that they said. They, I didn't sleep for 16 days. It was a very long detox for me, and they told me to make my bed. And I hadn't made my bed since the Johnson administration. And, <laughs> and what's the point of making my bed if I haven't slept? I, all this rationalization, but I made it anyways. I, I took the made bed, and I made it again. I just did whatever they said. They told me to eat at 7 a.m. I don't want to eat at 7. I don't eat in the morning. Well, I ate. I just did whatever they said. And um, I got out of there and, uh, you know, back out on the streets again. Um, but I w there's, some, there's something that happened there. For some reason, it took. Because I... Uh, uh, I was surrounded by addicts, not only the, uh, the fellows that I was housed with, but I was, uh, everyone who worked there, right from, the, uh, from the director to the, uh, the doctors, everybody, uh, the, the janitors, they were all in recovery. And that was my first experience of talking one-on-one, two-on-two with, with other, uh, other people in my situation. I could talk to normies all day and they don't know what I'm talking about, about this thing. They just say, just quit. Just stop taking it. Stop doing it. Don't buy anymore. But these people understood. And there was, that, was, that was an attractive thing for me. And so when I got out, I continued to do what they said. They don't just set you free. They give you a little plan, a little plan of attack. And uh, one of those was to go to meetings. And I, I did that. I went to a lot of meetings. And uh, three, four meetings a day sometimes. I did five once. That'll never happen again. <laughs> But I went to a lot of meetings, and, uh, and I knew it was inevitable I had to get a sponsor. I didn't want to do that. But really, I hadn't wanted to do any of this. So that was really, it was just another thing of something I didn't want to do. I did that, and that was, uh, that was 
that was scary. That was uncomfortable. And I got a sponsor. I got a great sponsor. Um, he doesn't tell me to do anything. I have to ask. I have to ask all the time. He never corrects me. He never uh, tells me what to do. He doesn't give me assignments unless I ask. I wouldn't have done any of the steps had I not asked, what are we doing now? What are we doing now? And then he'll tell me what to do or what I could do or what I might do. And uh, so I, I did that and um, slowly a change started to take place. You know, when I got to, uh, to that place out in Rancho Mirage, you know, they put you through all, all kinds of tests and everything. And I went to see the psychiatrist and, uh, and we're sitting there and he's scribbling and he says, now, do you think that you're, uh, do you think that you're depressed? And I said, well, doctor, I think I'm clinically disappointed <laughs> that uh, every person, every idea, every concept, everything, including myself, has let me down. And um, that's where I was. And this change that started to take place probably around, uh, right around 30 days. So if you're new, there's, listen up. <laughs> around 30 days this depression that I had lived with for so long who I thought was me who I thought this is what life was I thought this is it this is my this is my lot in life is to be just kind of a drag you know I could put on a face and everything but inside it was dark and it was hopeless and uh, around 30 days that depression started to lift and then there was 60 days, and then I got suspicious. I thought, it's going to come back. And then I started to hear this pink cloud talk. And, uh, and I'm sitting here, you know, with a uh, little over three and a half years. It has not come back. I've had, some, uh, I've had some bad days, you know. Joe has been there. Um, but not like it was. Not like it was. I like that old adage, you know, there is no false hope. There's only false hopelessness. And... Uh, that's what I lived by before, was false hope. Everything's going to let me down. So I continued on this, uh, this road of happy destiny. I could never use that word happy. It wasn't in my lexicon. Happy was for other people. And uh, I began working the steps. And uh, I continued to share in meetings. I did all the things that were suggested, reading the books, and uh, for me, it was not in the reading of the books uh, that was helpful for me. It was in the rereading of the books. I could read that same book five times, and it's different each time. Because uh, that's what we do here in recovery, is we change. My bottom, my bottom completely, utterly destroyed my ability not only to make music, but to even listen to music. If I heard music, it mocked me. If I was at a restaurant and music was playing louder than my chewing, I, 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 I was totally annoyed. I had to get out of there. Why I bring that up is because around four months, six months, I, uh, I faced the piano, which uh, I was utterly terrified of because I had put so much work into it, and then I just totally abandoned it. I stopped making music cold turkey. That's one thing I did quit on my own. And uh, to show you how sick it was, I love music. I absolutely love music. 
music is, it, 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 I just love it. And I, I, can remember, I can remember a scene from 1996 where they came to pick up my Steinway because I sold it. I did not want to see it. And when they came to take it away, it wasn't like, oh, there goes my Steinway. I, my attitude was, get that out of here. Get it out of here. I don't want to see it anymore. So back to, uh, to four to six months where I faced the piano again. And it was, you know, I had to, I had to start gradually because it had been six years without, uh, without playing a note. And I, I just had to touch it, not unlike the monkeys in 2001, you know, where they just, they touch it. <laughs> and that was it for the day. That's it. I touched the piano. And I could say to my sponsor, and I was pretty excited, I touched it. Well, he'd say, that's good. That's good. Why don't you touch it tomorrow? <laughs> and I did. And I touched it. And I not only just touched it, then I pressed a note. And this went on, this went on uh, for a few months where just a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, my ego told me that I could sit down and play again. The reality is when I sat down and played, it was, it was like, uh, 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 what's his name? The... Um, the, uh, the physicist with the cerebral palsy. It was all here, but Stephen Hawking, I, I played the piano like Stephen Hawking. It was, it was not pretty. So I had to start over. I had to start over. Everything was so clumsy to me, new in recovery. But I continued to do it very, very gradually. And, uh, you know, and I, and I can tell you here today that uh, I can play more fluidly than I ever did when I was high. And I'm not concentrating on the mistakes or the errors or judging every single aspect of whatever particular song I may face at that moment. I now I just watch the mistakes go by. There goes one. There goes one. There goes one. So I've learned to kind of let go, uh, I don't know about absolutely, but let go in music in that way. And that, that was really something for me because I'm into evidence. I'm into tangible evidence. I got a higher power, but I'm into tangible evidence that I can see and feel, and that came through for me in the music. And uh, this business of higher power in God, uh, when I got here, I was a, uh, a borderline atheist, you know? And, uh, and they asked me back at that rehab, I had to go to the... Uh, the spiritual department, and because uh, they have a department for everything, and uh, and this gentleman who looked like a like a seventy year old David Bowie asked me. Uh, he looked right at me and he said, "Do you have higher power?" <laughs> and uh, you know, I had nothing at that point, and I and I uh, and the only thing that I could think of was my dog, and because this this dog has never let me down. And when I looked into my dog's eyes, that was my window uh, at that point to my higher power. Though I, I didn't really know it at the time, you know? And I still have that dog. And, and he reminds me what it's about sometimes when I get out of the moment or I get into my head or uh, I start to freak or, uh, you know, a dog really kind of tells you what's going on right now. So the, uh, the higher power, the God thing 
It's a very gradual process for me, and I got that through the steps, and that's to me, is not, the steps are not just, not just a way to stay clean and sober and to learn how to live life on life's terms, but I think each step is guiding me closer to that. And uh, that's been my experience, that it really, it really is an inside job. And it's gradual. There's been no white light experiences here. This has been very slow and gradual. I've had, I've had some, uh, some moments that were kind of wild, you know. But now I embrace reality. Reality used to be avoided at all costs. Stillness used to be mistaken for boredom. And now when it's quiet, I, I kind of, I pay attention. And that's what I've noticed here with some of my fellows that I've met in these rooms. Uh, there's three simple things that uh, the people who get this seem to do is that they show up, they show up at these, these crazy meetings and they pay attention, they pay attention they pay attention when the guy with 54 years is talking. They pay attention when the guy with 54 minutes is talking. They just pay attention. And then when they do share, they tell the truth. What a concept, the truth. Because when I get high, I lie. It's just hand in hand. If a, if a normie gets high or has a couple drinks, you know, they're going to tell me more truth than I need to hear right at the moment. <laughs> if an addict gets high, suddenly it's, it's KGB and, and CIA and all these, these uh, Oscar performances and uh, just lie about things we don't have no business lying. We don't even need to lie about. And uh, and you know, what's worse is, is, is there's nothing much worse than a liar with a bad memory. And with marijuana, that kind of <laughs> goes together. And trying to keep my story straight. That's why we uh, end up avoiding people altogether. It says, I just can't keep up with that. I don't remember what I told you. So I don't know. All in all, this, is, this has been... Uh, this has been a wild journey. Everything that's happened to me that's really, that's really uh, been, had an impact on me, again, if you're new, listen up. I did not see it coming. I did not see it coming. And that's in, in the spiritual experiences, in the feeling of, there she goes, in the feeling of, uh, of joy. I didn't know what joy was. I had no experience with joy. I heard about it in Christmas songs. And, uh, and I got my first experience of joy in recovery when I got, uh, when I took my first year muffin. I think it was, it was some, it was a muffin. It looked like the elephant man. It was uh, with a candle jammed in it at the last minute at a meeting where they don't give cakes, but my sponsor gave me that. And then uh, to identify as getting one year, which was just utterly science fiction to me. How could this be happening? How could this be happening? And so I've experienced joy, and I can feel now, and I don't run from my feelings. I, I have people that I can call and talk about uh, my feelings who are not getting paid to listen to me. <laughs> what was more, 
more astounding to me in my fifth step was not what I was confessing. It was that this man would sit here and listen to this. What is he, what's he, what is he getting out of this? Why is he doing this? Why do he have me in, my, in his home and to listen to this? Why is he doing that? That was such a big deal to me. And so sponsorship has been a big deal to me. And, and I, sponsor, I sponsor a few people and the, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. It can't really be explained until you experience it of what goes on there. And it's, it's, not a, it's not an ego trip, it's anything but. And that's how I really learned to work the steps is by sponsoring. That's where you really understand what a fifth step is. And trying to, you can't really explain surrender. You can only kind of uh, be an example of it. And that goes the same with any of the steps. So the, the, the change has been profound. Words fail me to express what I've gotten since, since I got here and surrendered. Um, all I know is that if I have any advice, is to just go where the love is, go to what makes you strong, talk about what you're afraid of, and, uh, and to not be afraid of people, especially people like us, because there's just one addict talking to another. Nothing beats it, because we understand each other, even if we're just talking about the Lakers or the weather. There's just something about it, and uh, and to, uh, to do what we're here for, our primary purpose. Stay clean and sober, help another addict, and make of yourself a light. Thank you for letting me share.